2: Bienvenidos and welcome to Miha on the Mic, where me, Miha, interviews daughters of immigrants who are making moves in their industries around the world. Today, I'm so excited to invite author and journalist Carmen Rita Wong. You are an American radio, television, and online journalist, personal finance expert, and author of the brand new book, Why Didn't You Tell Me?, which is a huge page turner. I'm so excited to talk about it. It explores her journey to finding out more about her cultural origins after the passing of her mother. So thank you, Carmen, for joining me on the podcast today. Let's begin with what is. Why didn't you tell me? We have to get to the juicy stuff first because it's it's
3: yeah. Well, first of all, thank you so much for having me. What a wonderful wonderful podcast me has on the mic cuz it's just yeah. If there was one book that was about being a Mia, <laughs> it and would be this one, one. This is it. Um My mother kept a lot of secrets. Uh, One of them is, of course, uh, my origins. Where did I come from Um, in the terms of, you know, who my father is and the whole story behind who she was back then when she made a decision to essentially raise me, um, Dominican Chinese, Dominicana in China. And she was Dominican and Papi Wong was was Chinese immigrant, both immigrants, arranged marriage. And I was raised a Wong. I was raised China Latina. And for 31 years, and when she got sick with cancer fairly young, in her 50s, I discovered that he was not my biological father. Um, And when I confronted her about it, she made up another story. And that was the story I lived with for another 10 years until that crazy thing called DNA testing came about. (laughs) And I found out it was somebody else completely... So. It's as much a book about, you know, it's not a book about me finding a father. It's a book about, I have plenty of those. It's a book about discovering my mother as her, but not as her daughter, as her daughter and not. I had to see her as a full human being. I had to kind of do this psychological detective work to figure out why would she do something like that? Why would she'd do something that was incredibly painful because my origins didn't weren't just as easy as father and mother. It was also about race, about identity, uh, then another, a stepfather, and about his race and his identity. And it was, it was so messy and painful and I needed to understand it. And in discovering who she was as a person, I also discovered myself. So that's the kind of book it is. It sounds like
2: such an amazing story. And and when I first read the description of it, I was like, no, this can't be real. It doesn't sound like it could happen, like it's a telenovela plot, but it is. It is your reality. I would like to just start off with, you know, you're a finance reporter. It's not something that you're, you know, specializing in. You're not necessarily doing stories about race and culture like this. So I would love to kind of talk about how you shifted into this thinking, into this kind of discourse that you now had to kind of create with their personal story so you know how was that shift for you and what did it feel like to own your story like this
3: yeah well there's two things that have always been there one is who i am and my identity of course um and my uh my voice i've always had one in the sense i've always been a pain in the ass for people (laughs) um but i've always been questioning things and two i've always been a writer I started out uh, covering finance at Money Magazine and Fortune. So, you know, in the late 90s, if you can believe it. So, I had a career of about 20 years in media covering finance. Um, That included, you know, hosting my own TV show. And I also wrote advice columns. So, the writing was always there. You know, moving out of that career, I did well, it was great. Um, But moving on into writing, and writing something so personal. And part of the reason why, you know, I had a couple of advice books, I had a couple of very lovely, salacious novels that I did as an experiment just to see if I could just do it and have fun, basically writing a couple of telenovelas, which was great. I was like, okay, I'm going to do something so big and so personal that, you know, this is going to be, you know, if you're going to enter the room, you might as well enter, you know, <laughs> full out. So that's what I did. And I've always wanted to write this story and i'll tell you why i mean the impetus was i was that little kid who had a very difficult home life so i just found solace in libraries in other people's stories whether they were real or fake or not just stories and i looked in those shelves and i was like we are not there women aren't there latina asian black we're not there lgbtq i just didn't see us and i said well wait a second like You know, we're American stories. Why don't we hear about our stories? So it became this thing that was always in the back of my head. I wanted to see more of our stories. And the belief that my story, as complicated as it seems and dramatic and all that, Guadalupe was a piece of work, is a very typical American story. I have heard from so many people that their parents kept secrets. They're another race. They have another father. They have another this. They have another millions of people share my story and millions more if you just broaden it out to being, you know, an immigrant, b- the first born in this country, huge, right? So I just wanted to add to that and just another layer of, you know what? I'm sure other people share similarities with me and I was right, thank goodness.
2: Oh my gosh, definitely. I remember reading the again, the the synopsis and I was like, yeah, but this isn't so far in. I feel like I've heard a lot of stories recently about the DNA testing being big part of it's kind of conversations around our origins. And it's so wild to think that, you know, a couple of years back, we couldn't have even imagined, fathomed that. Speaking of the past, I would love for you to kind of tell us about the young Carmen Rita Wong growing up. What was your childhood like with those blending of cultures?
3: Well, it was very... Rich, not financially, but culturally, very rich. So um, I started, we were in Harlem with a ton of of Dominican family that had come, you know, after the wars. So uptown was Dominicana land and my cousins were there and tias and just so many people. But it was between that and Chinatown with Papi Wong. So my worlds were rich beyond belief, right? Was there a ton of love? I don't know, but my abuela loved me, I'll tell you that. Um, but my mother was young and and you know, and having fun with her friends and working, you know, they worked for Oscar de la Renta, you know, sewing seamstresses, a lot of Dominican women um he employed in his atelier. But then my mother divorced Poppy and remarried an Anglo-American man. So, he was the complete opposite of Poppy Wong. Poppy was To say it any differently, I couldn't. It's just he was a Chinese gangster. He was a gangster. That's one father. And then my stepfather was, she met him, you know, he was a fellow student of a friend of hers at Columbia University in graduate school, economics. So complete opposite. Um, And then he moved us to New Hampshire, which in the late 70s, early 80s was white. I mean, very, even Southern New Hampshire, which is where we were, which is now pretty diverse, right? Back then, I mean, it was farmland. So we left our family, our culture, our food, our music, how we dressed. We left literally everything to live in a white America that was as foreign to me as living in a completely different country. It was isolating. It was very, very difficult. Those were difficult years. So I found solace in reading. And my older brother who you know, protected me as much as possible. We fought just like siblings, but (laughs) my brother was, was, you know, my big brother saved my sanity.
2: (laughs) That's so interesting because, you know, today we talk a lot about identifying as hyphenated Americans. How do you even define yourself or how did you define yourself then? And then through the many stages of your discovery, how did you keep Redefining yourself because it feels like you're, you know, if you were to fill out this SAT application, fill out this ethnicity form, you know, you have to check everything now, right?
3: Well, according Uh to my DNA, even with indigenous too, like I check everything, like literally I've got everything in me. However, that's what this country is it's all of us. So, of course, I'm American. But as we know and as we see much more now, this country is very different simply depending on what state you live in, what town you live in, what city you live in. There are so many different Americas within America. And for me, in terms of biology, what's interesting is, you know, I, w- I was very worried about, you know, when I found out that I'm not biologically Chinese, it was devastating because it was, I was like losing a whole identity. But at the same time, I realized well, what have I really lost? You can't change the fact that I grew up Chinese with a Chinese father who only passed away this June. So he's been in my life 50 years. You can't stop that. That doesn't change me. And what's wonderful is that, you know, the Latina community accepts me, the Chinese community accepts me, the African-American community accepts me because I'm Afro-Latina for sure, for sure. That's very important to me. My daughter, her father's German descent, so she's white presenting. She knows she's Latina, but she also knows she's white. She appears white, right? But she also knows she has all her cousins are black, but their last names are Wong. So my family really defies the ideas of what the label of race is versus culture. What I hope is that people take away from my book too, and and besides everything about the mother-daughter thing, which is huge, is that race is not culture. And we know that in the Latino community, but but a lot of people don't. And these ideas of what it is and stuff, you know, those are put on us. We have to know ourselves, know our families, know where we were raised. I think it's important to not let people tell you who you are.
2: Yeah, you're a citizen of the world in that sense. I always have the same kind of conversation because I'm Colombian-American living in France and my husband's French. And so I have this whole thing of what are you now? <laughs> and so I just say, I'm a New Yorker. I'm from Queens.
3: Yeah. I mean, if people, thankfully, I don't get that question anymore. Cause I was probably just too grown, but like, nobody's just like, Oh, what are you? I mean, and also it depends on who's asking me because I believe that that's like a really loaded question. That's full of projections. People love mm. to just project stuff on you. I've had people really, you know, covering finance for so many years. They get these, you know, finance bros. think they know everything, you know? And it's like, you know, what are you? And I'm I'm like, um, I'm Afro-Latina, Chinese, New Yorker, you know? And they're like, well, you don't look like this to me. You look like that. You don't get to tell the world what it is, right? So yeah. if you're asking me because you're genuinely curious, fabulous. If you're asking me because you want to pin me down so that you can be, you can tell me what my identity is, absolutely not.
2: And that's so hard, right? Because these days, I think I mean, coming up in a multicultural community like that, you don't ask yourself these questions because it's only when you exit that space that you get confronted with the fact that not everywhere is this diverse. Not everywhere is, you know, having this kind of mix of communities and and races and cultures. Not everywhere will have, you know, the Chinese Cuban restaurant. It's not Washington Heights, like everywhere. But, you know, that's, I completely understand how difficult that shift must have been for you. And so I do want to get into your many dads that you have. <laughs> but before that I want to talk about your mother because you know this show is is a lot about our relationship with our families and how they shape who we are and how they pass on their cultures to us. So how was that relationship with your mom? You know, how was Spanish in your household? What was the what was the thing that kind of dominated your your everyday? What culture?
3: I Mi español es terrible, mira, because I have not been able to practice as much, you know, once my family's passed, and I haven't been able to travel during the pandemic. So I'm rusty, but Spanish was my first language. Well, when we moved to New Hampshire, they didn't teach Spanish in school, and my new Anglo father did not allow my mother to speak Spanish in the house. It was that whole idea of melting pot assimilation. So I lost my Spanish. The nuns in school only taught French. So I took eight years of French. Je parle français peu. So I can understand French. I can, it really helped with the Spanish, by the way, because I didn't took Spanish in school, but they have similar structure. So it's very interesting how language can kind of go over time. And then I can travel in Italy and somehow understand (laughs) because I have all these other languages. But the thing about was more so about just the culture of being Dominican. You know, it was very much the culture of being Latina. I was raised with beauty pageants. My mother put me in beauty pageants. We watched beauty pageants. Unfortunately, because boy does that give you body dysmorphia. Um but you know, it was um she wasn't allowed to cook the food anymore, but thank God we we drove back to New York often because she was very homesick. And I th- thank God that I had that childhood there with the family because I think it's one of the most precious things of my life it fills my heart even if you know my heart wasn't filled necessarily by love like I said abuela was was it but just being surrounded by women of all different colors families that were made of hodgepodges of you know cousins or siblings that w- weren't related, but maybe were related. Like we didn't know. I mean, that was very Dominican thing. Like you took in people. You didn't know. We were my grandfather's second family, you know, like he had a wife and kids he he put in the Bronx, but he lived with Abuela who was his second partner, but it was also the food that was also the music. It was a way of living that was just very vibrant and rich and expressive and that I never lost.
2: I'm curious about how that community shaped so much of the connections that you could make when your mother passed. You know, how was the that experience of making all of these discoveries within that community? Because um, I imagine you weren't alone, thanks to that, the rest of your family kind of no, supporting I was that alone. question.
3: Really? Oh, yeah, no. My mother was ostracized by the family when she moved to New Hampshire she became pretty cut off i mean she talked to cousins and all that stuff but we became very cut off and then they decided you know my cousins decided that we started talking too white dressing too white uh you know this that the other thing that that she thought she was my mother thought she was better than everybody else blah 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 blah, blah. you know all of this business she was raising us very because then i had four younger sisters after to be very accomplished so it was all about college. Her family felt that that was aggressively American, aggressively white, and it wasn't right that she was raising me to go to college instead of getting married and having children. And to this day, a lot of the family still feels that way. And it's fine. Like, But that's part of the culture that, um, frankly, I'm glad she didn't, and not because I looked down on it, because she gave us choices in many ways even though I didn't feel like I had a choice, trust me, she would have killed me skin me alive if I did not go to college. But she also did say, you're 18, you go to college and you're out. After that, you do whatever you want. At least I was given another option and that's very important. So I was always very grateful for that. But no, I mean, and also too, you gotta understand about, I mean, to my point about like, there's different communities in different states, in different towns, in different cities the, the Dominican, uh, you know, mass immigration that happened during Trujillo and after Trujillo, there was a whole generation that came and they had their kids and then the kids grew up and then the kids moved. So everybody was out of New York City by the mid 80s. My grandparents passed away by early 90s. That's it. Everybody dispersed. New Jersey, Texas, New Hampshire, wherever. We didn't have that anymore um, and that's unfortunate and that's also kind of like an American byproduct right? It's like you can't keep yeah. communities together sometimes
2: and it's almost like it's because of the desperately seeking the American dream you kind of become this individualistic it always comes back to the same topic on every one of these episodes every conversation I've had with other daughters of immigrants it always comes back to individualistic western culture versus our communitarian culture and how we have to kind of reconcile the two. And if we can't, then there's going to be a suffering there. And there's going to be what we call generational trauma. So I would like to hear your thoughts on that. You know, you you talk about generational trauma, of course, in your book, especially because, you know, all, all of these things are happening with generations and generations of your family. And now you as a mother are going to be coming with all of this baggage, um, cultural baggage, emotional baggage, crazy situation baggage. <laughs> um, how do you deal with that? You know, how are you kind of facing all of this with your own daughter?
3: 15 years of weekly therapy. (laughs) Oh my goodness. And a master's in psychology. Um, I definitely think that there is pain and heartbreak in both situations. I wish there was a place where I could have felt welcome even though I was different in my own community. You know, even in graduate school, I worked with um, a Dominican organization that because of the way I spoke, when I went to leave, I said something about being Dominican and they were shocked. And I said, what, what did you think I was? And they were like, oh, we just thought you were Anglo. People have ideas of what and how things and culture should be. I desperately missed and mourned um my Dominican family and a lot of them because they just did not agree with the choices that we made. Now, I also feel I didn't have a lot of choices, right? I had to do what my mother told me to do, really. But I also, like I said, I'm really happy, especially that I had the choice to be able to pursue a career and be a mother and, you know, all that stuff. I want everyone to have all these choices and not be looked down on in their community if they choose to do that. I think the only idea of individualism that I like is the idea that we treat people as individual human beings, but we live in a community. And that's what I miss. I I loved being a community. At one point when my daughter was very young, we lived in a building that had a lot of old school New Yorkers in it. And I loved it. It It was a very mixed building, but all of the neighbors knew each other. We all knew each other. And it was just like when I was a kid, when you could just like go down the hall to play, just go, you know? Or just go down, you smell something good, and you're like, you know, knock, knock, what are you cooking? You know? That's great. And that's part of the community that I absolutely miss. I think, you know, with the therapy, what I've realized is we have to make peace with what we've been given. We can pursue and mindfully try to live the values that we want. But we also have to live in a society and with families that maybe don't accept those values. So for example, I have redefined what family is to me. Family are people who show up for me and my daughter. I show up for you, you show up for me. If you do not, even if we're biologically related, sure, you're relatives. Do you know what I mean? And that doesn't necessarily jive with Latin culture so much. It's like, if you're related, you're related, period. And you owe people stuff and they're like, you owe them this and that. And I say, you yeah. know what, for my mental sanity's sake, and for the value of myself as a human being, as an uh, eldest daughter, I'm sure you've had a lot of eldest daughters, right? On the show. I am
2: the eldest daughter there you go. <laughs> myself. There you so go. So I have that.
3: Girl, we will get skinned alive if we don't set boundaries as to how that idea of family love works. Because that's what happened. Man, I would kill myself for everyone's love kill myself. I'd run myself to the ground. Always the one, you know, paying for this or giving this or taking care of that or calling or showing up or arranging or build always. I'm always there for you if you need me. But when tables turn, who's there for me? Right? So I just think that we can honor family, but we can also define family. And it's so much better for our mental health when we've been the only ones doing the Eldest daughter syndrome. <laughs> yeah.
2: Yeah. And when you have all of those responsibilities on your shoulders and you, you know, decide that to choose wellness and to choose your own happiness, it can be hard to accept.
3: You said your own. And then I'm like, well, there's the individual's part, right? Choosing my mm-hmm. own happiness. But here's what yeah. I say. the Part of the reason why, why I'm in therapy for so long and, and choosing to be more well, it's not just for, it's not for me. It's for my daughter. I want to be a better mother to her. I want to be a better citizen of this world. I want to be a better person in this world. I believe that that's part of the community element that may be being forgotten. Because it's not about boundaries for me. It's boundaries so I can breathe, live, survive, and serve better and love better.
2: Thank you for sharing that as well, because I think it's it's a challenge. like everyone has their own perspective on it, but in the end, we're all just trying to be better humans. So as much as as damaged as we are, as much baggage as we have, we're always trying to be better people to ourselves and to other people. I love seeing it that way. These interviews end up becoming therapy for me because <laughs> it's it's we're all kind of facing these same things. So I do want to get to your many fathers. I mean, as a daughter. In those different spaces, like you said, you know, you had New York and you're the daughter, everyone's daughter. You're miha for everyone in the sense that, you know, the community is kind of taking care of you. They're caring for you. But like going to your actual fathers who made you, <laughs> what is that relationship like?
3: Um, I'll tell you this. I've had three fathers, but not one whole one. So I wrote this book as a, like a, a conversation with my mother's ghost because my mother was the most important figure in my life and shaped my life tremendously. There was Poppy Wong, right? Who was the father, he was raised as him as my father, but I didn't live with him as I grew up. We moved to New Hampshire and then I lived with my stepfather who I call Marty in the book. And then he has four girls with my mother who um, I helped raise, you know how it goes, but my brother and I are the Wongs. And then of course I find out about a uh, biological father here's what I'll say. I like to not focus on them very much. They're part of things, you know, they were partially always there in a way, but none of them were my father. Poppy Wong is like, sure, he was always around at some point, except when he was put away, if you know what I mean. You got to read the book because it's saucy. And he was a colorful, colorful character and always showed up and come on, how much money you want today? You know, and he made up for his lack of being around with, you know, $100 bills and that sort of thing. Um, But he was a wild, chaotic character. Who I realized, though, now that he passed away in June, and I realized that he was actually the, probably the most of, he was the most my father, even though I, I never lived with him, because he actively wanted to be my father. He called all the time like a pain in the ass, but he always, always wanted to be in my life. Marty's still around, so I don't like to talk about it too much out of respect for him and my, my sisters. But I'll say this, it's a very different form of parenting. I think that Poppy, as the years go by, like I just feel like he was very much my father. In the end, he absolutely was, um, even though I lived under the roof with Marty. I very much wanted him to be my father because I wanted this whole, I mean, who wants, okay. So on the one hand, I got a gangster who's crazy. And then on the other hand, I've got this, you know, very professional suit wearing, briefcase wearing, builds my mother a house, you know, American Man with the Wall Street Journal and blah, blah, blah. Like, which father would you choose? You know what I'm saying? And so I very much wanted to be his kid back then. But, you know, I wasn't. Or I was. Mm. You got to read the book because then I was, but then I wasn't. Oh, Gosh. oh Guadalupe, my mother, man. Let's just say, <laughs> look, look, she had three men thinking I was theirs. That's more more puppies than one girl needs. <laughs> Let me tell you, she was something else. We had a very difficult relationship. We, but it had like nobody business. My mother was an abusive person, but I cannot not look back and be like Lupe, <laughs> like wow, like you cannot look Respect. back and not be impressed. <laughs> yeah, like, mm. I'm kind of weirdly impressed. Talk about yeah. survival instincts
2: mm she was a survivor, and now you are too because you have you know grown up and gotten out of those spaces that were difficult and now you're you have your book you have your career you have your you're respected in your field it's what she dreamed for you know
3: yes and no I let me put it this way it's so funny when people read my book everybody has Comes at it like it's almost like a Rush test, you know, the psychological ink blocks. It's like what you tell me about your reaction to the book, not to freak anyone out, but I can see a bit of you, right? So, for example, some of the older readers, women, older women, read and go, Oh, but like Lupe would have been so proud of you and she did such good <laughs> with you. And I'm just like, Did you read the same book that I wrote? Like, Yeah, sure, but at what cost? I paid way too high a price, man. I should not have had to pay that price. I did not feel loved. I felt like a piece of property that had to perform, that had to do what I was told, or else that was put down constantly, that was constantly striving for love and affection, children should not have to work so hard to be loved. And I think the biggest gift you can give your kids is that if you love them as they are and you invest in them, right? And you invest in yourself and in your in your mental health so that you treat them with kindness, that kid will be a success. Because there'll be a success in the world. How do you define success? Sure, I mean, I did good, right? I did, I did great. I'm in a good place financially and all that sort of stuff. But I could have uh, traded some things for just more bit of being accepted for who I and love for who I was.
2: Yeah. Oh my goodness. And then also looking back on it now, you've had all of this time to reflect on it, so you're no longer in those feelings you've now put words to that situation. What does that feel like? I think like a lot of the time, like you said, it depends on what stage of the journey you're on. It depends if you're an older person who is going to see it as, oh, you're proud of your kid. Or if you're somebody who is, you know, in the moment of I'm struggling with my family and kind of going away from it. What does it feel like now to be able to, you know, be in your power and then put those words to the page and be open about it?
3: I definitely set out what I, I I did what I set out to do, and I've heard back from um, so many wonderful people who have said, you've helped me think about my relationship with my mom differently. You've helped me see things differently with my mother. You've helped me see that I'm not alone in my relationship with my mother. Those things are are huge, and it's funny, when my publisher first bought my book, she's she's also a mom, also a woman of color, and she was like, this book is gonna help so many grown daughters with their mothers. <laughs> and I was like, I hope so, you think? I hope so, and I'm like, yes, that's what I'm hearing. That makes me so happy, it fills my heart, because it's easy for me, easier for me now that she's been gone for 20 years, almost 20 years, right? I remember what it was like to live in it. It's painful. So I'm happy that it's out there. I'm also hoping like that I'm helping people understand that you don't have to forgive, but what you can do is you can understand and that'll bring you peace too. So I don't necessarily forgive my mother or my fathers because they haven't apologized and I've given my fathers opportunities to do so, and they've not. And they haven't changed behavior. And when I confronted my mother before she died, she told me a whole nother lie. Now I know why she did it. It was survival on her part. And I go into that in the book, and you can you can see why I did why she did it and why, you know, I accepted it. But to see her as that human being who made those decisions, not as my mother, but as a scared, desperate human being. That has helped my peace like so much. I can't even tell you I am at peace with her. I can now talk to her like a human being as opposed to be screaming in my head. You know, <laughs> like even if your mother's still around, you're like, oh, God, Dios mio, da, 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 you know, you're like, um, but now I can even just be very just calm, talking with her spirit, you know?
2: Yeah. You've come to that place of healing. That's beautiful we're going to come to the end of this section of the interview we always do like a speed round of questions um fun things like cultural things but before we get to that i do want to hear um maybe if you can share an anecdote because on miha podcast basically the structure of the show is a fictionalized novella uh which is largely based on my own family's immigration experience so i i hear you i fictionalized it so that i could almost Tell the stories we tell ourselves without feeling like I couldn't, you know, I didn't need to fact check everything that I was telling. I wanted to really tell the story in the the most, the best way, let's say. And so what we do is basically kind of do these kind of vignettes with those anecdotes, like an audio photo album moment. I don't know if you, you had like anything that immediately came to mind when I asked, okay, what is an anecdote that kind of defines your experience in
3: some way as a child? I describe this in the book. So Poppy used to come pick us up, my brother and I, on the weekends from our apartment up in Harlem. And he drove this big, crazy car, a gangster car. And he'd pick us up um, to take us out to fancy dinners on the weekends in Chinatown, mostly to show us off to his bosses uh, or his colleagues. And my brother and I would get all dressed up and Abuela would make me the cutest little outfits from like remnants from the salon. And she made me this little fur chubby coat out of remnants. And I had little go-go boots and my older brother was all dressed up in his little suit. And he'd pick us up and we'd uh, you know be weaving through these huge restaurants, huge, with like white tablecloths and a dais in the back and red and gold everywhere. And he was such a charmer. He'd be going through saying hi to everyone, yeah, da, 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 you know, hey, and then and speaking in in Mandarin. And we'd just be weaving through these two little like brown kids who <laughs> did not look Chinese at all. And just in wonder, dressed up in our Dominicanness, uh, in a, living in this, and then coming into this Chinese world, and he would bring us up to the dais where the boss was and show us off. And he used to tease me when we'd be at dinner. My favorite dish was like this whole steamed sea bass. And I could use chopsticks from, you know, day one. My favorite, favorite foods were mangoo and this steamed ginger bass. And he would tease me about like, he'd take the eyeball and he'd (laughs) he'd bring it over to me and be like, eat the eyeball so you could see underwater. You know, it was disgusting. I'd be like, no, no. But it was beautiful to know where we would go to sleep at night, which is uptown with our Dominican family, but be sitting there with our Chinese father, with everyone chattering uh, in Chinese around us and eating this incredible food. It's beautiful worlds.
2: Oh, thank you for sharing that. That is beautiful. All right now we are coming to an end so i'm going to do the miha speed round questions uh you just have to answer like first thing that comes to your mind okay so what language do you swear in when you accidentally touch a hot plate Oi, spanish
3: what's your favorite food oh my gosh all sorts of things um dominican mango chinese uh whole ginger sea bass um, American or Mexican food Love Mexican food Love, <laughs> love, 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 love All of it I put tahini on everything Oh, love that Alright, song that you've had in your head this week Oh my gosh I just saw Janet Jackson last night So <laughs> I've been listening to is Janet Jackson all week So that's what's been in my head And my daughter was in Into the Woods for her high school performance So before that, it was a full week of Into the Woods <laughs> <laughs>
2: amazing. All right, what is your last Google search that you are
3: comfortable sharing? I don't even know. I don't even know what my last Google search was. Like this is like not my research week. You caught me on a on a non-research <laughs> week. Um but usually I'm googling some crazy things like um I don't know like for my next book uh which covering some people in the in the civil rights and and um feminist rights movement. So it's like all that stuff from the 70s.
2: All right. What is the most embarrassing dream that you had for yourself when you were growing up?
3: Oh, my gosh. Oh, I, just, I wanted to be an actor and a dancer. I wanted to be a solid gold dancer. Everybody who's a certain age knows what solid, go Google solid gold dancers. And you will see that's what I was raised on. And these dancers were incredible. And oof, I was in love. I thought I was going to be a solid gold dancer. <laughs>
2: And what was your biggest dream that maybe you
3: could say that you accomplished? Oh, this book. And I am not Mm. just being a salesperson. This telling my story, feeling like I have a story to tell and it's important enough to tell and that it can touch people and that it's an American story. Oof. It's huge Mm. because hosting and co-creating and co-writing my own daily national TV show, I thought that was a big deal. This feels so much more because it's just me. I'm so happy to be in libraries. Those libraries that I lived in as a kid, oh, makes me so happy. Oh,
2: All right, that's it. Thank you so much for your time, Carmen. Now tell us where we can find you, where we can find your book. Is the audiobook out? There's an audiobook, right?
3: Yes, audiobook. so... Yes, it's in everything. You can get digital, you can audio. However, the hardcover is the only one that has the great pictures in it. Um, but my paperback comes out this summer soon. So it's accessible to everyone. And I read the audio. Um, I'm at CarmenRitaWong.com. And you can get the Spanish language version, Espanol también. Um, mm-hmm. And Instagram at CarmenRitaWong. Amazing. Oh, last thing. What is your advice to other Mijas
2: who kind of want to learn more about their origins, make peace with their origins?
3: Do seek out help. Do seek out great therapy. There are, I started out when I I had no money on a sliding scale, use resources, read, do a lot of self-exploration and do that self-work to get to know who you really are and what's very, very important to you, what's causing you pain and those patterns Mm. and what you can do. Self-awareness is key. Just be kind. Mm -hmm. Why does someone get you upset? Why, why, why? Just constantly be asking the why. That's the work that I mentioned. And it's just been tremendous and a tremendous help. And you can do that also with your relationship with your mother, for sure. (laughs) And or father. And or fathers, no matter how many you have. (laughs) Amazing. Thank you so much, Carmen. This has been so much fun. Thank you so much.
2: Thanks for listening. This is Miha on the Mic, a season of reflection on our shared experiences as daughters of immigrants. Over the next couple of weeks, I'll be sharing stories like these and inviting guests to share theirs. Follow us on Instagram at mihapodcast, that's M-I-J-A podcast, and leave us a note if you like this story. Tune in every Wednesday for a new episode. This is a production of Studio Ochenta, a Latina-owned multilingual podcast studio dedicated to raising voices across cultures. For more from Studio Ochenta, follow us at Ochenta Podcasts on Instagram. That's O-C-H-E-N-T-A, podcast with an S, on Instagram. P.S. Don't forget this season is also about you. If you have a story you'd like to share, or if you'd like to be a guest on the show, I invite you to reach out on Instagram at mihapodcasts and leave us a message with a short story or memory of yours that warms your heart. We'll read it out loud on the show. Hasta pronto. Chao.